If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Tim Stockdale. Tim has served as an SLP primarily in university and acute care settings. He works as a manager of education and business enablement for Aspire Respiratory Products as director of the Hard to Swallow, a Catalyst for Change in Dysphagia Management virtual conference for Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions and as an acute care SLP at two Utah hospitals. He champions the endeavor to better understand and bridge gaps in dysphagia education in order to facilitate service proportional to the needs of patients. He received his undergraduate degree from West Virginia University, his master's of science in speech-language pathology from the University of South Florida, and a doctorate in speech-language pathology from Northwestern University. Tim can be reached at swallowpatho, that's S-W-A-L-L-O-W-P-A-T-H-O on Instagram. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Hello, my friends. I just wanted to announce that this is the 300th episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in every week, uh, for listening, for providing your feedback, for writing reviews, for just sending me any, any comments that you have. I'm so grateful and so appreciative for it all. Thank you to all of the guests that we've ever had on this podcast. Um, you all make it what it is. And so I'm eternally grateful honored, humbled for every guest that we've had and for everybody that that tunes in every week and listens. We are almost at 5 million downloads, which is is crazy. That should be happening in the next few months. 
Um, but that's just insane. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for supporting this. This has been just an insane labor of love that was started, gosh, what, five years ago, maybe? I'll have to actually look. Um, but 300 episodes is, is incredible. So thank you all so, so much. And please continue to give me your feedback on who you want to hear from and what topics you want to dive into. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Tim. Well, good morning on your end of the coast. Yeah, <laughs> on the toast. Yeah, still still morning here, 11.15, just barely. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I am primarily a medical speech language pathologist. I uh, have a history in clinical education, acute care, didactic instruction related to dysphagia and med SLP, um, curriculum design related to dysphagia. And right now, um, as a prior big supporter of respiratory muscle strength training, I've transitioned to a role with uh, Aspire Products, maker of the EMST 150, and um, working with them as their manager of education and business enablement. Yeah. Awesome. I love this. So when Tim and I originally were started talking about doing this podcast together, he was, you know, working in clinical graduate education and now has taken on this other role. So I'm excited for this conversation because I think it's going to cover cover a wide range of topics. So yeah, where do you want to start? What do you want to dive into first? Oh man. Um, I mean, I'm always up for a good soapbox. Yes. I am sure yeah. that you imagine that you've talked about a lot of this stuff before, you know, looking at gaps in clinical practice and, and, and threats to our practice and subsequent gaps in education that lead to that. That's just something that I'm very passionate about. I mean, that's why the theme in my, in my positions has been education. And so when I started off clinically, I began full-time in an acute care setting for my CF, continued there for a while, and then um, another opportunity came up, but it didn't have a number of hours attached to it. So I, what happened is I moved, and I ended up working per diem at a number of facilities. And so within that, you see a high variability of practice. You know, you get a representation of what different people do, how they make their decisions, and my interest was peaked in how different things were. And sometimes how potentially detrimental they could be to the patient because we're trying to cover our butts. We're trying to do things the safest way, not understanding like a full body approach to what we can, the recommendations that we make, how that can have a negative consequence in some other area. And so that really piqued my interest uh, from an anecdotal level about competency. So this was right around the time that uh, doctors Plowman and Humbert came out with their article, Elucidating Inconsistencies in Dysphagia Diagnostics. And it, and it blew my mind. You know, they showed five regular swallows. I think they were graduate students and they just showed their swallows and they surveyed SLPs. Is this normal or is this abnormal or normal or disordered? You'd have to look at the article for the exact text uh, in the questions. But I mean, on average, it was about 66% accurate in just, just differentiating between normal and abnormal. And overall, I think there were nine, over 900 answers, which, which blew my mind. Um, they followed up to look at, at some different norms and, and the data weren't much better for that. Uh, but also, you know, Alicia Bose published the paper, a survey of clinical decision making in, in SLPs or something or other. And it really kind of spoke to the same thing. You know, our ability to diagnose, look at a particular either bolus flow parameter or physiological process and say, is this typical or is it disordered? Can you identify the primary impairment? And so 
similarly sad results with that. And so between this anecdotal information at the beginning of my career and then these data from both of these papers, I was just like, what are we doing? Like, what is going on? How can we practice like this? Someone's going to take this away from us because we're obviously not not doing our job. And I was, you know, that became a concern. And so I got into, um, I came out to, I actually practiced clinic, uh, in clinical education for a little bit at USF, but not much with dysphagia. But when I came out to Rocky Mountain University in Provo, Utah, um, a new program in its infancy really had a lot of ability to kind of make it what we knew the field needed to be. And so within that, uh, we were able to analyze the, the current gaps in education for dysphagia and try to tackle many of those. And so some of those could be addressed within our curriculum, and that would address it for students of our curriculum. And, and it, you know, it might set a precedent also for other places, too. And, and, and that's great. But on another scale, we're like, how do we get this information out? And also, like, it's a new program. How do we advertise uh, or market the name of Rocky Mountain as being something that's really, you know, forward thinking as far as treatment goes, or excuse me, as far as education goes, and um, and, and get that information out. And so we uh, began this conference, Hard to Swallow, a Catalyst for Change in Dysphagia Management, to really target some of those gaps on a professional level. And so... The long story short, that is my, that is my passion. And now I'm working for Aspire, um, with education for them and we'll get to, you know, continue that legacy, hopefully within their education program. I love it. All right. So, so yeah, so let's, let's back up because I, I love everything that you, that you just said here, but a few different studies, a few different papers that you looked at really talked about how SLPs that are out practicing we don't even know the difference between normal and functional swallowing. And, you know, it's, it's funny, not funny that what we do is dysphagia is swallowing disorders. But if we don't even know a disordered swallow from a functional swallow from a normal swallow, we're so far up the creek. So let's go on the soapbox, Tim. Another soapbox. Okay. Um, I mean, you think of the idea of what's typical versus atypical. And so if you take like a, a standard distribution, you have your bell curve and whatever, but swallowing is not on a standard distribution. And so how do we, you know, how do we say what's typical, what's atypical? Um, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been work done on that. You can look at some of, uh, Molfenner and Steele's me- uh, meta analysis or systematic reviews looking into that. And it, and it's tremendously helpful. It's things that we, we should really know, things that we should really be aware of. Um, but at the same time, I'm looking at other, other comparisons. Like I'm looking at people. So if I see an individual who is four feet, 11 inches tall or who is six feet, four inches tall, that might not be typical, right? But does that make it disordered? And in my opinion, not necessarily, right? No, not in and of itself. The idea of if something is disordered to me really kind of anchors back to big picture items of overall health. Uh, one, first and foremost, is it affecting their quality of life, right? So someone's, someone's aspirating some, you know, that's not, it's not typical for them to perpetually aspirate or perpetually silent aspirate. It's not typical, not that it's a huge deal necessarily. But then you think back, is this affecting their quality of life? Is it affecting their pulmonary health, their hydration, nutrition? Oh, boy, I'm forgetting one other one. Nutrition, hydration, pulmonary health, quality of life. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, are they asphyxiating? That's a pretty important one. Can they breathe? Right. And so basically, is it affecting their health and is it affecting their their overall psycho psychosocial status or psychological status? And so when we're when I'm particularly looking at uh, like a video fluoroscopic swallow study, and I know the background on my patient, 
I'm thinking this may not be typical or, or, you know, what is a fair representation of the population, but it's still functional for that person. And, and that's what I want to communicate to them because it's the big picture that matters. It's not that, Hey, I'm different. You know, let's, well, let's appreciate diversity. Let's appreciate diversity in the swallow, but let's look at like, you know, first you care, is it affecting your quality of life? And then is it affecting your health? Those are things that I think we need to really focus on more as far as functionality of the swallow, not, um, not merely typical, which typical is fine. But in addition to that, we need to look at functionality as well. I mean, I think that's a huge thing. I've gone through that so much with, with my son and just as, as I've experienced life as a clinician of what I thought I knew versus life as a parent and what things actually look like. And, you know, I, yeah. I'm guilty of that too, of thinking like, oh, this is, this is impaired. This is not okay. We need to fix this. We need to intervene. We need to do something. Right. And now as a parent, I'm like, oh, that's not even really a thing. Like this is where, what right. we need to focus on. That doesn't impact our quality of life. That's not, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. And I think, and, and that's why it's something I'm so passionate about is really communicating with our patients, like learning why they came to us in the first place. Or if they didn't come to us, if we're going to see them in the hospital, do they want our services? What can we do for them? What is really bothering them? What is their end goal? Like, I just, I don't think we do enough, a good enough job of getting to know what is really important to the patient and then how we can help them from there instead of us just saying, this is what's wrong with you. This is what you need to fix. And we're going to intervene and do that for you. Yeah, no, that that's spot on. And I really appreciate the aspect, uh, the perspective as a mother that you can bring into it. We can't lose focus of, of our ultimate goal, that we're on the same team as our patients. And we're trying to facilitate their ability to make decisions, to make the best decisions. We're not making the decisions for them, but we want to support them in their autonomy. I, I mean, I don't know if now's the time, but I would love to hear more about how your, um, your experience with that really kind of changed your paradigm of, of thinking. Well, I mean, so much. I mean, we had feeding therapists for my son. Gosh, I mean, since he was two. And I think it wasn't until he was four that I actually found a feeding therapist that like jived with our way of thinking. And, and I don't necessarily sure. think they were, I'm not saying they were a bad SLP. That's not the label I'm putting on, but I wanted to be on my team to sort of work with us and not say, this is what you need to do, or this is what I'm going to do for him. If you don't want to do this, then I'm not of service to you, you know, as opposed to, hey, what's important to you? And and the the one SLP that really just opened my eyes to feeding therapy and, and really just changed it all for me was she's like, I don't really know much about your son's diagnosis. There's not a ton of literature out there, but what can I help you? What is, what is impacting you? What is impacting the family? What is impacting the quality of life? You know, we we had another feeding therapist that brought in all this equipment, wanted to make all these environmental changes. And before I knew it, I was like, this isn't fun. This isn't even dinner anymore. This is not yeah. dinner. This is you must do this, this and this. The dog has to be in a different room. The dogs now bark like there were so many things that just felt like this is not this is not family dinner. This is like my son has to be uncomfortable and do all this weird stuff because this is what a therapist is telling me my child will benefit in the long run. And I just think like for me, that made a huge divide between therapy and family quality time. And there's things we do in therapy and there's things we can ask our patients to do exercise wise, but they don't have to always be done at the dinner table when you just want to have family time. And and that was a big, like, those are just things that I ask my patients a lot more of, you know, is this, 
Is this something that bothers you at mealtime? Does this not bother you at mealtime? Is this something you want to find a workaround for at mealtime? Is this something that you just want to work on in the background and not let anybody know about? So all those questions were, like I said, just getting to the bottom of what really impacted the patient and working with them as opposed to my agenda versus your agenda. Yeah. You know, I think when we're fixers that we've missed the point of our role. Yeah. Right. We're, we're not, you know, mechanics or technicians who who see something that's broken and like, I'm going to fix this. You know, your car's a flat tire. Let's patch it or replace it. Whatever. You know, we're dealing with human beings and their families. And so the, on one side, there's the anatomic and physiological aspect. You know, what's the pathophysiology of the swallow? How can we use treatment to specifically target this? And so for there's a, there's a health perspective from like a body health, but then there's the, the values component, the mind, what's important to this individual. And that's something that I think historically has been really not heated enough, right? We haven't collaborated enough with patients. We're in this, you know, quick, find it, fix it, move on mentality. Your story seems to exemplify that. And so I, you know, kudos to that therapist, especially for their vulnerability too, and saying, I don't know much about this diagnosis. We can't, we can't know much about everything. I I had so much more respect for her for coming to me like that and just saying, look, I'm here to help you. Like what, what what is bothering you? What can I learn about? Like, she was like, I'm willing to go to courses. I'm willing to reach out to my colleagues and see how I can help you best. And it just, it fostered such a, collaborative environment. Like I was so, it, it just, it made me feel good that like, okay, somebody's really here to support us, like not just give us exercises or, you know, I just, I, I think a lot about, you know, how we've gotten in this sort of quote unquote thick and liquids predicament, right? Like, you know, are thick and liquids good? Or are they bad? You know, that, and, and there's a whole myriad of, of it's, it's a wide range, right? But, but to me, how many patients, like I know I had, I saw so many patients in skilled nursing that would just say, they just put me on thick and liquids and I have no idea what this is and I don't like this stuff and I'm not drinking it. You know, how many times have we come across patients like that as opposed to, hey, this is what we found on the study. This is what we're recommending. Is this something mm-hmm. that even interests you? Is this a path you want sure. to go down? You like, and I just, I think we, we've just never done a good job of having these preliminary conversations with the patients. And now I think we're dealing with the repercussions in a majorly well, sure. way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I am, have been encouraged lately. I think we're doing better. I think there are a lot of people, uh, with whom this resonates, but we've got a long way to go or a really long way to go. And so I know we can speculate a lot on, on why that is. Um, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on why we're so focused on just fixing the body? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting because I think as swallowing education has progressed, right? We're like, oh, we now like, what is that quote? If you like, I can't even think of the quote now. If all you have is a something, the answer is always. Oh, and nail, everything's a hammer. Yes, yes, yes. If all, if all you have is, is a hammer, everything is a nail, right? I think oh. we've sort of <laughs> gone down that, whatever it is. Anyways. <laughs> so I, I think we've, we've, we've learned things and we're excited, right? Like we're excited, like, oh my gosh, this field is so new. This is so exhilarating. We can Mm -hmm. really help patients. This patient has this. I know about this. I can help them with this. Yeah, And that's not a bad thing, right? It's, It's good that we're excited. It's good that we're passionate about being able to help people, but I will always go back to this, to the evidence-based practice, you know, triad, right? And there's our clinical experience and there's the patient preference too. 
And I love, love, love that we, we are harping on clinical evidence. I love that, but I hate that we've really lost sight of these other two arms of or legs of the stool or, or triangle or whatever. And I think we, we can't, I think it has to be very equal. Like, yes, this is the evidence that I know and that I can bring to the table, but what do you want? And what other things do I know about my experience that I've had? And, and I think that's just where we've, we've gotten very tunnel visioned about, you know, yeah. this is, this is the evidence. This is what we can do to fix it. Um, and that's great, but some people don't want to be fixed and some people don't want our help or they have a whole other idea of what quality life, quality of life means to them. And, and this is something I've gotten into a lot with different physical therapists for my son too. Like they, this is a priority for him, whereas that's not a priority. Something else is just, it really involves a really good conversation that I, I mean, I know I keep going back to that. I just don't think we're doing a good job of having. Yeah. You know, when you miss out on the patient values side of the yeah. the triangle, it, it undermines who we are, like intrinsically who we are and what we're supposed to be as healthcare providers. Yeah. Definitely worth working on. Yeah. And, and Tim and I actually connected. We, we had lunch. I was out at Rocky Mountain because that's where I'm doing my PhD. And I, I'm in a, um, a healthcare ethics class right now that I'm really enjoying and diving into all of sort of just the, the case studies, the, the case law yeah. studies that have been done with patients with dysphagia and with swallowing disorders. And the one thing, and I, and I just wrote a paper about this last weekend, the, the one thing that you never will find is a lawsuit because the patient's preference were followed, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's nobody's going to sue because they're mad that you listened to them and you did what they asked them to do. And, and, and so many times do we say, oh, well, you know, they're not going to be safe, so we need to recommend this, but it's not what the patient wanted. It's not what the family wanted. And then there's a lawsuit because there's, you know, this is what we wanted. This is what they did. Then the person died. Then, you know, all these things. And so I just go back to that, that nobody's ever sued when they've had their rights listened to and and upheld. No, that's, um, you know, I haven't perused the medical literature enough to to know that, but I, I, I I trust you and it makes total sense. I mean, if, if that's intrinsically who, who we are, we're trying to facilitate um, the autonomy and and the patient and their self-determinants. That makes total sense. And I agree 100%. I was trying to quickly find, um, back in, in undergrad, I was, uh, I was a philosophy minor and I had a healthcare ethics class and that very different, right? Very different from the course of PhD level just for, um, healthcare professions. But one of the pioneer cases was about this young man who I don't think he was uh, a survivor of very severe burns or, or something, but there was this whole back and forth about how they just wanted to keep treating him and keep treating him and keep treating him. And he didn't want it anymore. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and look into that. I think it would be a really good um, teaching point for, for some stuff like this about like, you know, why do we think the way that we do now? Yeah. Anyway, it, I mean, what is it if we can't have control over our, our, our healthcare, we're not having healthcare for these things. What is, what does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I want to give the caveat that obviously there's processes for upholding patients' rights and autonomies and doing informed consent and having, you know, conversations with, with social workers and things like that present. It's not, we can't just say, oh, well, the patient wanted this and, and do something crazy, but it's just something that I always go back to, you know, and, 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 I almost have as much pride in helping patients just decide that they don't want our help as I do with actually really helping patients. Like I provided them the education. I gave them the risks and benefits of 
what might happen if, what might happen if not. And they made that decision. And that's really empowering to a clinician. I think the more I've leaned into letting them decide, but knowing that I presented a lot of information and I gave them a lot to think about on both sides and they made the decision that was best for them. Like that is so much more part of our job too, than just fixing people. Yeah. And and that really brings in the professional skilled component of it to me is that you're, you're analyzing and you're problem solving, and then you're providing them, meeting them at their level and providing them with information that they need to make a decision, right? You're not just saying, well, I don't care, do what you want, right? That's a too far swing into the other side. Uh, but you're truly facilitating this. So that's, that's great. Yeah. One, one thing you said in the beginning, and, and I'd love for you to expand on a little bit more is, is really looking at the whole patient, looking at the whole body. Yeah. And for me, like, just as we go through seasons, that's how I go. Like I, in my brain, I compartmentalize things with my son. Like, okay, this is the season we are focusing on walking and that is it. And, you know, some other therapists will say, well, we noticed this and we want to try this. And I can't upset the apple cart with that right now because we're so focused on this. I know that's a thing. I know that's an issue, but that's status quo. And, and I'll get my focus in a few months. Sure. And so I think of that with our patients, you know, like we've had some patients that are like, oh, I'm on thickened liquids. It's fine. I'm hydrated. Like, it's fine. I don't cough. I don't choke anymore. Like to them, they may have 97,000 other things going on that the, this just isn't the thing to do today. Right. Like, yeah, no, I, um, you know, if we're overly focused on liberating everyone from, from thickened liquids, we kind of missed the point too, because, well, what do they want? I mean, I'm going to say 98% of the time they're going to want to be liberated, but at the same time, there's enough people who are like, well, I don't like being embarrassed because I cough all the time whenever I go out or, you know, or something like that. There could, could be a reason for it. So as far as like the whole body approach, you know, we as SLPs, we get a, we get education in the upper aerodigestive tract. We get the anatomy of, of the mouth and the pharynx, some of the lungs and some of, of breath support and, and respiration and ventilation and so on. But there's not like a general anatomy and physiology prerequisite, right? at least how it stands right now. So we're not taught enough about the whole body to understand like how one thing may impact another. Uh, you know, mind you, if you had a good dysphagia course, hopefully your instructor would go over, you know, yeah, there's a, a higher likelihood that if you put someone on honey thick liquids, they're going to die, right? Based on some of yeah. some, some older work. But I think our background as far as just general body education, kind of a, a, a holistic comprehensive um education related to healthcare is, is really missing. And we could do a lot more to support that, say, even by just requiring some general and abnormal physiology courses as an undergrad. Maybe we need to tweak uh, the SLP undergrad, or maybe it should just be a general health sciences undergrad. That could allow us to uh, appreciate better what our other professions do, what our other healthcare professions do as well. If we're taking like a I mean, even like a, a microbiology course with with pharmacists and with pre-med students and, and a number of different individuals like that, we get a diversity of thought and perspective and some really important information that's going to help us later on. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of a helping versus hurting in a whole body approach, we're we're seeking to make things better or to help patients to compensate for for particular deficits that they have. But my thing with not having as much of a whole body approach is, you know, say with thickened liquids in particular, are you looking at a patient who already has enough problems with hydration in the first place? And this is going to push them over the edge to where they're going to get recurrent UTIs or, you know, issues with their kidneys. 
And we can't know all of those things, but it involves collaboration with other medical practitioners, a good line of communication with the physicians and, and other individuals. I mean, that's one example. You can think of a number of others, nutritional needs for um, individuals who are then put on a puree diet. It's unappealing. They don't want to look at it and they definitely don't want to eat it. It's got a lot of water content added to it, meaning it's got a, a average nutritional value that's going to be less and they need maybe a lot of protein to recover from pneumonia or they need a lot of protein to heal their body in another way. So, I mean, just another consideration there too about how we can really take a, a more of a whole body approach to this and consider what are the potential drawbacks um, or pitfalls of the recommendations or the treatment that we're providing. Yeah. One of the, one of the lawsuits that I, I got that I actually wrote my, my paper on, which was really interesting because I had to just talk about both sides of the case just from our clinical lens. And it was a patient that had said that, that there was a modified done. They a video fluoroscopy done. They suggested thickened liquids for this patient because of XYZ. The patient said, I do not want the thickened liquids. I just want to live my life. I understand yeah. the SLP did a wonderful job explaining, you know, you could end up with aspiration. You could end up with pneumonia. It is, you know, a common cause of death. The SLP did a very good job of explaining all of that. Sure. A new director of nursing, I believe, came in to the facility about a month later and went and I guess was going through records and saw that this patient was supposed to be on thickened liquids and put the patient back on thick and liquids. And the patient said, you know, that's not what I wanted. You know, we, we talked about all this. Everybody was in agreement. I understand, you know, I'm at a risk for it. I understand this is a thing I have, but I don't want them. And she said, well, this facility is not going to be liable. If something happens while you're under our care, you have to have the thick and liquids. Something happened. The man ended up being hospitalized, ended up with dehydration, ended up with electrolyte imbalance, his kidneys, everything was all totally off, he ended up dying. Um, and so the, the doctor came on and said, you know, the thick and liquids was literally the worst thing for this person's body, this patient's body, but not to right. mention, he also said he never wanted them in the first place. So why did this happen? So obviously there was a million moving parts here yeah. because, you know, the SLP did the right thing in that honoring the patient's wishes. But then the director of nursing said, well, this patient needs thick and liquids because that's, you know, this facility can't be liable. And I think we now know that, yes, patients have their rights and we need to uphold them. You know, that really exemplifies this kind of skewed mindset of protecting ourselves versus helping the patient. Yeah, it's really way, way too focused on ourselves. And how are we going to cover cover our butts? How are we going to protect the facility and that sort of thing rather than providing um, education as to risks and data, data-driven risks and benefits and um, letting the patient decide? Yeah, and, and part of me went, you know, Okay, so the director of nursing wants this patient on thick and liquids because they had the, the, the video fluoroscopy saw that they do have dysphagia. But should this director of nursing also look into, is this patient at risk for dehydration? Is this patient consuming the thick and liquids? Like, I feel like from a nursing and a medical perspective, there's so many other things that we need to course, be looking yeah. at too. So, you know, going back to your whole body approach, like we can't just be working in these silos of saying if X, then Y, because that's mm-hmm. not how it works. It's if A, then B, C, D, E, F, G, like there's just a million other things that it impacts. And I I think that's one of the things that I like, the more knowledge that I gain, the more courses I take, you know, I'm an education junkie too, but I just love how much it expands my horizons of like, oh crud, like that might not have been the best situation for that patient. I probably should have explained that better. I should have given them, you know, let them decide that Mm -hmm. this is a possibility or this is a possibility, which one feels better to you. 
Yeah, that's that's a really important part of all of this, too, is realizing back what we did before we knew this. Right. Because, I mean, how much more buy in are you going to get or how much less buy in are you going to get versus when you're pointing the fingers like you need to do this, you need to do that, you're doing it wrong, that sort of thing. And, and, and I hope that I don't come across that way because I have done some stupid things. I've done some really dumb things. But the idea is. You know, you learn better and you do better and you try to keep learning so that you can become better. It's, it's a mindset of continual improvement. But there's, all, there's also this idea of, of vulnerability and saying, look at what I did back when I was a CF in 2014 or look what I did five years later in 2019, this, this mistake that I made. And I would do that differently now. I mean, that's a really uh, helpful approach, especially when dealing with, with students or other individuals who might feel themselves in a, feel that they themselves are in a vulnerable place and they kind of put on a facade. They want to, you know, fake it till they make it. And you're saying, Hey, don't do that. Don't do that. You have to have an authentic mindset and be vulnerable about what, vulnerable about what you do and don't know so that you can become, you know, better and become what you need to be and what your patients deserve. Yeah. I mean, I think about it too, like researchers, like that's an entire, occupation profession that's literally created to make us rethink the way we always thought things were done, right? Like their job is to do research, to find out new ways of doing things. And so for us to not listen to that or to say, well, no, no, this is how we did things 30 years ago. Your research doesn't matter. You know, we're discounting an entire profession. But, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, when I have these conversations with patients, it's a lot of times they'll say, you know, well, what would you do? You know, and and I've had those sort of vulnerable moments where I've said, you know, I've sort of told patients that this might be, you know, the best way to go. But I've changed my thinking after sort of seeing their quality of life outcomes and seeing how they feel that maybe this isn't the best way for you. And I think just being open and honest and having those vulnerable conversations like this is a way that I would go. But given, you know, what you said is important to you, that that might not be the best way for you. And I just. I think that just gains you so much more respect. Like you can spew every research article, every cranial nerve, every, I don't know, neurological thing in the world, but sometimes they just want to talk to a human that's compassionate and understands them and supports them and wants to help them make the best decision. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think what you highlighted there is letting them know that they have the power to make this decision too. Not just, you know, your mindset coming into it, but letting them know that, that it, that it's up to them. Like you're going to support them in, in whatever way, uh, you know, you think is best, but ultimately they have the power to, to control their, their destination or at least their, you know, their, how their lifestyle, how they're going to live and what they're going to do. Yeah. So, so I think in, in having these conversations about patient autonomy, things like that, we obviously have to have the tools to back up our recommendations, right? Like we can't just say, oh, you don't need thick and liquids. Like, no, we need video thoracoscopies. We need fees. We need these tools to support us in making the recommendations that we do. But obviously there's a lot of facilities that may not be on board or they have their own financial reasons. So let's, let's talk about this. What do we do if we don't have the resources that we need? So as far as um, advocating for instrumentals in particular, I mean, hopefully, hopefully uh, you are integrated with a, a health system that really values the patient. You know, you want to you want to you're going to become more like the people who you're around. Um, and so hopefully you're at least working with a place that really values patient outcomes. And, and I think most most places do. However, if you do that, then. And, and, and again, this isn't going to work for everybody, of course. This is just, you know, this is some of my advice. Be familiar with why you're advocating for the things that you are. 
you know, data-driven outcomes for why this is best, not just like, oh, you know, I feel like it's best to do a video fluoroscopic swallow study, not instead of going that route. I mean, if we can say, well, you know, from a clinical swallow evaluation, we really can't diagnose much pathophysiology. I mean, maybe if they have impaired labial seal, we'll, we'll see the bolus spill out of their mouth, but like what's going on in the pharynx? What's going on with the oral phase where they're pushing the bolus back? And so to see that and really have an accurate diagnosis in order to prescribe treatment that's specific to that diagnosis of over 20 muscle pairs and, you know, for, for a, from a motoric perspective, but then all these sensory issues too, to do that, we've got to see what's going on. I mean, we don't even know if they're aspirating or not without instrumentals. And so hopefully, you know, if you're working for a place that, that cares about the patients, uh, you know, the most more than money that that will help. But I think we can go further by knowing the way that our healthcare system makes money. And so one thing that I can speak to is in acute care environment where you get um, bundle related reimbursement. And so it, as I understand it for, for DRGs, you get paid for a diagnosis. So I'm just going to make this up but pretend that somebody comes in with like a community acquired pneumonia and the insurance company will look at how much it should cost. They say it should cost in the area to treat that, and they'll give you that much money to treat it. But if you, so if your patient stays for five days and you get $20,000, then you get $4,000 a day. But if they're discharged a day early, then you get $5,000 a day and can see somebody else on day five to get you know more money or whatever. So maybe is there data that shows if we provide, you know, we spend more time with the patient for education, um, we provide instrumentals and get an accurate diagnosis soon so we can prescribe treatment, maybe they can discharge them more quickly. Or maybe they're less likely to be readmitted for getting aspiration pneumonia or, or a urinary tract infection or something like that, um, which will cause very frequently the hospital to get penalties and have to pay more money. And so as far as that goes and as far as quantifiable outcomes related to um, readmissions for dysphagia, I, maybe I should be aware of more. I'm not aware of much with that, but I know that readmission rates are, are studied a lot. And so that's something that hospitals are very aware of, at least acute care hospitals are very aware of, that is a, a tremendous financial sink. And so I think knowing that and being able to know um, the inner workings of, of reimbursement within your specific facility and, you know, selling that is like, hey, you know, doing what's best for the patient is ultimately very likely to lead to positive monetary outcomes, too, because, you know, many of these places are, are businesses and you've got to think like them, know our audience as far as to be able to advocate as we should. Yeah. My former fees life, that was really just all I did was advocated for, you know, the cost savings that having access to fees or video fluoroscopy could have for skilled nursing facilities. And it's, you know, it, it's, I think what's interesting is so many SLPs would say like, well, that's not my role. Like I'm not the dollars and cents person, but is it our role? No, but it, yes. And, and I say that only because you need the tools to do the job. Right. And, and you have to think of, we've got to work with other people. We have to meet other people halfway. Right. And if we're asking for something specific, we need to speak their language. And a lot of these administrators, this is the language that they speak. So we've got to put it in terms that they can understand. So yeah, is it, is it work? It is hard work, but there's also tons of other people in the field that have done it. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sure in, in your new role now, you'll be doing a lot of education like this, but there's so many people out there that are, are happy to help you with this, that have done the number crunching on different facilities. So 
Um, if this is something you are struggling with and you're not sure how to eat this elephant per se, that, you know, please, please reach out. Please, you know, there's tons of forums all over the place that of people that are willing to help. Yeah. You know, sometime I would really like to hear about uh, within skilled nursing facilities, what you found to be so successful in advocating for that. Um, one of the things in, in my current role is advocating for respiratory muscle strength training and, and not all facilities can, can charge for that. Right. And so there are large university medical centers like Duke who will give them away because they believe it leads to better outcomes. Um, you know, it may decrease length of stay or readmittance. You know, I don't have all the data for that, but I'd be really curious to see how you did that in um, skilled nursing facilities, because I think that not just for patients with dysphagia, but there is a tremendous application for respiratory muscle strength training for cough and pulmonary clearance and a lot of other things that could apply to that setting. But I know there also are, are tremendous barriers and I'm you know, finding out about a lot of those more recently. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it came down to, you know, readmission rates, right? Like the, the facility, skill nurse facility gets dinged a ton of money if the patient goes back to the hospital. Also, the cost of actual thickened liquids and modified diets, um, you know, that that's huge. Um, and then just, you know, the cost of sometimes sending the patient to the hospital for a video fluoroscopy can be a lot more expensive than just bringing in a mobile fees or a mobile video fluoroscopy van. So there's a lot of expenses that get all sort of piled up if you think of like worst case scenario of, you know, patient not having a swallow study of patient being on thickened liquids, you know, unnecessarily. I think they say it can be up to like $7,000 a year. Then they get readmitted to the hospital. I think that's about $30,000 for a readmission for pneumonia. Um, so all these costs are really expensive when you think of just maybe a three or $500 fees or video fluoroscopy. So yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. You, you got to understand all the different facets of, uh, what's going on. And, and it and it's not from a perspective of you want to make more money. It's you want to leverage what you can to do what's best for your patient. And and so I think as long if that's your perspective, you know, it's okay. And it's actually um you should know about many of these other things so that you can be as skilled as possible in, in doing what's right for your patient. Yeah. I, I think you know the interesting question that that always brings up is like, well, I don't care about the dollars. I just want my patients to get the best care possible. And in recommending these tools, this is the best patient care possible. And I think we sort of miss the mark in that sometimes. Like it doesn't have to be a patient care versus cost effectiveness conversation. It can be a both and conversation. And how do we do both? How do we get the patient the best care possible and also do cost saving measures for the facility? I think it's very much a both and conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes me think, you know, there there are a lot of things either in graduate school or, or right after I got out of graduate school that I w- wish I would have known. And so, if we're looking at SLPs right now who are at a point in their career which you know where they're like, I'd like to know more about this, or I'd like to know more about functional swallowing, disordered swallowing. I think it's so important for us from the perspective of doing what's best for patients broadly, all patients and doing what's best for our field um, to be willing to talk about this, to be willing to have these conversations and to take initiative to try to make change again, not from a condescending perspective, you're doing it wrong. I'm doing it right. Because I mean, how many of us are doing it hundred percent, right? We're just all trying to do it better and make ourselves better. So, I mean, we've got to have these conversations and we've got to create and explore resources so that those who are hungry for knowledge can continue to to learn and become better. So kudos to everyone who's doing that, researchers, research clinicians, people who are creating continuing education programs, just anybody 
you know, every single clinician who, who's looking at how to become better. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect. Yep. Yep. What about, what about productivity, Tim? What do you say to, to clinicians that are trying to advocate for better productivity? That's a really difficult one. Um, I think what we were speaking to a minute ago, as far as cost and potential readmission really comes into it, especially in acute care where, you know, you're billing, but you're not really billing. You're just seeing how big of a piece of the pie of what the hospital is getting paid that, that rehab should get or whoever uh, the SLP department should get. But Will there be better outcomes in the long term for the hospital if you can prevent readmissions, if you can shorten hospital stays? I think if we could quantify that and have some really good data um, that we would be able to advocate for much better productivity and at least in acute care setting. And with the information that you've provided about like, you know, if someone has to go from a nursing facility back to the hospital, they get dinged a lot. And you can say, well, you know, if I can do X, Y, Z better, you know, with, with a stronger evidence base, I may not be as quote productive, but I'm going to help you a lot more or I'm very likely to help you on your bottom dollar a lot more. And we're going to be fulfilling the mission that we have, which is to care for these individuals. Yeah. So that I don't, I don't know. I wish that would just fix it. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to it, but you know, it starts with uh, some research and a conversation. Yeah. I think what's interesting, I had, had a, who was it? Um, Lisa Johnson. She was on, gosh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. How, how long, ever long ago that was, Lisa, that we did that. But something I thought that was so interesting was she was talking about how different, you know, EMRs, different electronic medical records systems will calculate productivity differently. And I think that's a really interesting point in that, you know, how does your facility oh, even, yeah. What what are they looking for? How is that system calculating it? And is that in line with what your management is wanting? Because sometimes the manager might not even know that they're thinking it means X, Y, Z, and the system's calculating it, you know, a whole different way. So I, those are things we don't think to look into. We trust technology in that aspect. But if one's speaking one language and somebody's wanting a different language, then there's a big mismatch there. But I think just looking into all of these things and and understanding them and not just taking them for surface, you know, face value that this is the way it is. So this is the way it is, because that's not, you know, there's there's a whole, you know, change management, organizational leadership and and things happen because people don't just sit back and say, OK, this is the way it is. Like, what can we do to change it? What can we do to make it better for everybody? Yeah. Your idea of how productivity is defined is is really insightful because you think about productivity in other professions and how it's measured, you know, are you, you know, are you doing something? Just, just think of it. If you hear the statement, are you being productive, right? Are you being productive outside of the context of SLP? Like, well, yeah, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that I can do to be productive. And if you are, you know, working in a different job, there are lots of different ways that you can um, be productive for your company, not just direct billable time. But in our profession, it's too often, no, it's face-to-face billable time. That is what's called productivity. But although you're doing documentation that you need to do and being productive doing it because it's going to help the patient, it's going to help communicate with others, that's not, quote, productive time. And so that's a misnomer. It should not be termed that. It should be termed direct billable time or whatever. It should be changed to to billable. This idea of for us to think, I don't see this many patients in a day, so I'm not productive, or I spend 45 minutes in a visit rather than 30 minutes in a visit, so I'm not being, you know, I'm not being productive because I'm not seeing as many patients. Like that, to me, 
is is nonsense because that extra 15 minutes may be spent in education or maybe you're in the hallway consulting the physician or the nurse or things you can't bill for. And those are going to be tremendously helpful toward preventing negative outcomes and to making sure that, you know, the charge nurse, as in your story before, doesn't come by a couple months later and say, wait, this person's supposed to be on thick and liquids and then they die and they get sued or whatever. I mean, that is productive. And so for it to be not considered not productive time is just insane to me. Yeah. I, I, I keep wanting to look into this, but um, a facility that I was doing some work at, the doctors would would write in the bottom of their notes, it would say like, you know, spent 12 minutes in the patient's room with direct patient contact and 58 minutes performing chart review, talking to other professionals, phone with the family. And I was like, that's really interesting because I mean, that's so true. Sometimes how often, you know, we might just stop in and talk to a patient for 10 minutes, but spend an hour doing backend logistics stuff. And for some people to say that stuff is not productive is so far wrong you know, so I think that's like so important is to know, okay, this stuff is actually valuable and does need to be done, but is it quote unquote productive per the EMR or is it productive per what our director or manager is calculating? Because that's a very big difference. And I think these are things that we need to know and get to the bottom of and all agree on. Yeah. I mean, call it what it is. Uh, I, I think if I if I ever go back to full-time work at a, at a hospital and they call it productivity, I'm going to stand my ground and be like, oh, you mean billable time? Yeah. Because, I mean, there are other things I'm doing to be productive. And I think just if we can try to adopt that terminology yeah. and get away from productivity, that that might help to, to change the way we think. Yeah. I like that, Tim. Should start that movement. There we go. All, All right. right. Everyone in this podcast, it is billable it productive is. time. It Henceforth. Is. All right. Yeah, this is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I super, super appreciate chatting with you. I love your perspective from the clinical education piece and now joining, you know, industry is really cool. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Any any final words, any final thoughts for the people? Oh, final words and final thoughts. <laughs> like, I need to prepare this a week ahead. <laughs> Just kidding. Communicate, you know, hold these conversations. Be vulnerable. Don't fake it till you make it. Don't pretend you know things that you don't. Because other people will, will follow, you know, they'll, they're likely to match it. And if we don't see things as they truly are, how can we make them better? There's uh, this leadership principle. If I don't know myself, how can I lead myself? And if I can't lead myself, how can I lead other people? So if we're not honest about what we truly know and what we don't know, we can't lead ourselves toward our ultimate goals. And if we can't lead ourselves, we're going to have a lot of hard time really genuinely getting buy-in from other people to to make things better on on a larger perspective. So, yeah, I think that would be my takeaway. Take the initiative. Be be real with yourself. Uh, be authentic with yourself and with with other people. And, um, you know, do what you think is do what you think is right. People will notice and people will follow. Awesome. Thank you so much, my friend. I love that so much. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I, I really you know, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be here and to chat with you and um, just any any avenue that we can get this information out is, uh, is so helpful. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. 
If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.